going to be in Luke 11 and Matthew 6 today. Why don't you kind of get there. Matthew 6. Been talking about prayer for a little bit. How's your prayer life today? Amen. All of us could use an increase in our prayer lives. Can we say amen? amen. No matter where we are, uh, there's always more. Amen. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. So if we're not doing that, there's room to grow. Uh, let's thank God for the word this morning. Uh, we are going to, our text is going to be at a Matthew 6 today. I'm going to start in verse 9 in just a minute. But Father, we thank you this morning that we have the word of God to teach us and that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And so we ask today, Lord, as uh, we go through these scriptures, as we go through the Lord's prayer, you would open up the eyes of our understanding that we would hear what you were saying to your disciples and we would hear what you're saying to us today when it comes to prayer. Father, I pray that uh, we would see and we would apply these things to our lives so that we would have a greater connection with you and a greater uh, increase in our lives of communing with you in prayer. I ask all this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Well, we had a couple installments of prayer. Uh, we looked at, you know, Luke 11 and Matthew 6, and we're going to be bouncing back and forth between those two things, looking into the Lord's Prayer. Last time we were together, we looked at three things required for effective prayer. And if you weren't here last Sunday, uh, I encourage you to get online and get that message. Uh, some people said they were having a problem downloading it. I'm going to make sure that that's, you know, that's working. But uh, this idea of having effective prayer is very important. We don't want to just do religious prayer, amen? We don't want to just do prayer for prayer's sake. We want to pray and let our prayers be effective. And so understand today, you know, effective prayer requires three things. Number one, effective prayer requires desperation. There has to be a sense of desperation in our prayer. Wow, you look really vivid out there with the glasses on desperation is something that we need in our prayer. I said this last week. I think some of our prayers don't get answered because they're not desperate enough. And God is not moved by lukewarm anything. Come on, church. The first service was a little bit lethargic this morning, so I'm counting on you to be a little lively. Amen. Was there something good on TV last night? I didn't stay up. But it's desperation in prayer, amen, desperation. And we've got to get to that place where we're not, if we're not moved, then God's not moved. If we're, if we're not desperate enough, then, you know, it doesn't impact or impress God. So we get desperate in prayer. We come to the place where we say, God, you are my only hope, amen. And, and if you're not at that place yet, you know, sometimes life will get you to that place. How many have just had life get you to the place where you've exhausted everything possible and you've had to say, God, you are now my only hope. There's nothing more anyone can do. There's nothing more anyone can say. There's nothing the doctors can do. And then we get to that place of desperation where we cry out to God and when we're desperate, it moves the heart of God. The second thing that makes prayer effective is persistence. It's not one and done. Well, I prayed that already. God heard me, so, you know, I just quit. Understand something. You and I need to come to this place of desperation, and then we need to be 
persistent, amen? Persistence is an important thing. And uh, when, you, you know, we ask God for something, you say, well, when do we quit praying? Have you ever thought, you know, well, I prayed this a, a bunch of time. I prayed this for years. I've been asking for this person to get saved for the longest time. But, you know, when do I quit? And the answer was, we pray until. We pray until God answers our prayer, amen? So there is no quit, amen? Now, sometimes God answers our prayer and we don't like the answer. Smile at me. You ever been there? God didn't like that answer. I want to keep praying. Do you have another offer? Is there a plan B? No. Sometimes we have to accept God's answer. Maybe the answer is no. Maybe the answer is not now. Maybe the answer is wait, and we don't like it. But we pray until God answers, and that's persistence. So desperation, persistence, and last week we said the third key of effective prayer was effective prayer requires faith. Faith is the currency of kingdom. We've got, you say, what do I need faith for in prayer? What do I need to exercise my faith for? Because we have to come to God and believe that he is and that he's, a, he's there and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We've got to believe that when we pray, God hears. You're his child. There's no parent that their child screams out and calls out and the parent ignores. No, especially mothers. You can hear, the, you can hear your kids scream or call on a playground amidst all the noise. Uh, 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 that's mine. That's mine. What do they do now? That's God. He knows our cries. He hears our prayers. And we have to have faith to believe, just like we were singing, he, Waymaker this morning, he, you know, even when it seems like God's not doing anything, we know that he's working. Even when it feels like he didn't hear, we know that he hears. It's faith, amen. That's what that song is all about this morning, releasing faith, believing God. So desperation, persistence, and faith. We pick up here Matthew 6, uh, looking at verse 9 through 13. Both Luke and Matthew give us a version of the Lord's Prayer. One is much more detailed than the other as we look at Matthew 6. Listen to Jesus' answer to his disciples' question, Lord, teach us to pray. Matthew 6, verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This was Jesus' answer to the question his disciples asked. Now, before we plunge into the Lord's Prayer and begin to deconstruct it and understand what Jesus is saying here, I want you to notice something. This is very important. Notice exactly what his disciples asked because he answers the question that they asked. They did not ask the Lord to teach them a prayer. They asked the Lord to teach them to pray. The Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, is not just a prayer. It's a model, a template, a skeleton of prayer. And this is what I want you to get. He didn't teach them a prayer. He's teaching them to pray. He's giving them the pattern of prayer to follow. So as we look at the Lord's Prayer and we deconstruct it and find every component of it, it is going to teach us how to pray. And this is what I want you to get this morning. This isn't just a prayer that we repeat together in unison during the high holy holidays. 
It's not a prayer that you pray with some beads, and if you pray 10 of them, you get forgiven, or you get what you want, or, or, or something else. Are you getting this today? That's religion. That's not what Jesus taught. He's not teaching a prayer to be prayed. He's teaching us a pattern, a template, a structure of prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is going to teach us how to approach God in a way that both honors him and moves his heart. We want to approach God in a way that honors him. You know, coming before a dignitary or, uh, you know, someone in high authority, someone who's a leader, someone who's a judge, you, you have to have the right amount of respect when you come before such people. Anybody. Now our generation is like, no, I don't respect anybody. I, you know, we're disrespectful. It's our culture. Now don't, don't die on me out there now. But, you know, God is saying, you know, this template, this structure of prayer is going to allow us to approach God in a way that honors him and moves his heart. I want to I give you a warning. Here's the warning label on what I'm going to be teaching for the next couple of weeks. Learning to pray like Jesus instructed us to pray is powerful. So be careful what you ask for. Oh, God, give me patience. Don't pray that. Some, some of the wise old saints who have prayed for patience know if you pray for patience, you'll get trouble, and then you're going to have to learn patience. So understand some things today. Uh, the praying the way Jesus taught us to pray, this, this prayer that we're looking at here is a template. It's a pattern. It will honor God. It will move his heart, and it is a powerful way to prayer. This is something that I'm teaching that every single one of us need to incorporate in our prayer lives. No matter what you've been taught over the years, no matter what religion has taught you, no matter what you know, any other spiritual person has taught you, this is how Jesus taught us to pray. So as we look here, you know, Luke 11 gives a very stripped down version of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6 provides the more detail. We're looking at Matthew 6, and let's break it down piece by piece. So verse 9 starts with this. It says, in this manner, therefore pray, Jesus speaking. He says, our Father, stop, full stop. We've got to stop right there because the way things start off, the beginning of anything is significant. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray as a template starts off with our Father. This means we come to God initially as we start acknowledging God as our Father. Now, the word Father used to describe God only, especially in the place of prayer and intimacy. The word Father in the Old Testament used to describe God in prayer is only used 15 times. Now, I'm going to let that settle in. The Old Testament is vast. It's big. Yet only 15 times God is referred to as approaching him in that way as a father. Now, I want you to see something here. That, that doesn't seem like a, a lot, and it's true, only 15 times. But in the New Testament, that concept completely explodes. In John's gospel alone, God is described as father over 100 times. And 65 more times in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So depending on your version, 165 plus times in the New Testament, God is described as Father. You say, well, what's the point? 15 to 165. I want you to see a powerful transition has been made in the New Testament because of the new covenant, because the veil is torn in half, and we have access to God now in a way that the Old Testament saints just didn't. 
And now that God is not seen as the boss, as the CEO, as the general, no, he's seen as our father. And it's so important, church, for us to get this concept, especially as we approach God, because if we approach him in any other way, it's the wrong way to come, over 165 times. Now, the word translated father in English uh, from the New Testament, you know the New Testament wasn't written in English. You know, you watch those shows on TV about Jesus, and he speaks perfect English. Some of them with an English accent. Truly, I say to you, no. Come on, that's no, Jesus didn't speak English. The word translated in English from the text here is an Aramaic word, and it means it's the word Abba. Now, Abba is, we're not talking about that band from Canada that I can't stand. My wife likes them. I can't, I don't know what to say. Sometimes she'll break out into one of their songs. Come on, second service. Laugh a little, it's good for your wrinkles. There you go. The word is Abba, but it doesn't, it has nothing to do with, you know, uh, what we understand it as maybe in our culture, but that word Abba, it simply translates daddy or papa. So when you see that word father there, it really means daddy God or papa God. Are you getting this today? The beautiful intimacy that's implied there, the tenderness, you, you, you know, you, you wouldn't, it's not dad, it's not father, it's papa, daddy. Here's three examples from scripture of, of the usage of Abba, Romans 8, 15. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, father, daddy, God. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, because God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You see that? It's our connection to God, not as workers, not as slaves, not as soldiers, but as children, amen, that we cry out to him, Papa, Daddy God. Matthew 14, 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. It isn't interesting in Mark here that even Jesus, who is fully God, calls his heavenly father, he calls him Papa, Abba. It's beautiful, isn't it? What a privilege it is to call him Papa, Abba. It implies tenderness and relationship and intimacy. And that's what I want you to understand today. When we approach God in prayer, we do it from a place of tender intimacy. We approach him as daddy God, and, and he's not a taskmaster. He's not our hard, you know, hardline boss. No, he is a tender, gentle, loving father. Abba, Papa, Daddy God. So who is our heavenly father to us? I want to remind you of seven things that our heavenly father is to. Number one, he's our instructor, Psalm 25. Lead me in your truth, amen. God, our father, leads us into truth by the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. He's our creator, Isaiah 64, 8. Look what it says. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter and we all work and we are the workmanship of your hands. He's our provider, according to Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
He's our deliverer, according to Colossians 1.11. He's our light, according to James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variance or shadow of turning. He is our life giver, according to 1 Peter 1, 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our grace and our peace, according to 2 Thessalonians 1, 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you getting the point here? Abba, Daddy, Papa, he's our everything. He's all we need. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the author and finisher of our lives. Amen? And we need to approach him as children of God. Not workers, not slaves, not soldiers, but children of God. The template continues here. I want you to never forget what I'm preaching today, that God is your father. No matter how rough your situation is, what you're going through, how alone you might feel at certain moments of life, you have a daddy God who loves you and is there for you and will never abandon you. The template moves on here, and it says, Our Father, and then it says, Who art in heaven. Our Father in heaven. So the template now defines the location of where our heavenly father is. It's almost like, well, okay, he's my father, but where's he at? And the the text is telling us where he's at. He is in heaven. Now, why is it important to mention that God, our father, is in heaven? Because the fact that he is in heaven shows us exactly who he is in our lives. Because he's in heaven, he sits, listen to me, church, in a place of authority and grandeur. Because he's in heaven, he sits in a place with perfect vision. Do you know you can see a lot when you're up high? You ever been in a plane looking down on a city? It's a different perspective, isn't it? Our heavenly father is not, you know, is not, you know, some kind of confused old guy who just doesn't know. No, he sits above all the heavens and the earth. The earth is his footstool. He looks down with a perfect perspective and he sees everything that's going on in your life and mine. So it's important for us to know that our God is in heaven. He has ultimate power. He sits in the place of authority. He rules and reigns over the universe from his heavenly throne. Come on, I wish you'd get a little excited this morning. That's the God you serve. The God who sits upon the heavens. Now, Psalm 2, 1 through 4, paints a perfect picture of our God reigning from the heavens. Now, I want you to get this perspective here. Many times it looks like, how many would agree sometimes it looks like the world's out of control? Amen. Come on, anybody who's paying attention. It looks, I mean, it looks like, man, God, are you up there? Where are you at, God? He's up there. He's on the throne. And this is God's response to sometimes the 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 craziness of human beings. This is what it says in Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? For the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So a picture of man conspiring. What are they doing? 
they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. What is the psalmist saying here? The psalmist is saying the world conspires against God and his people to throw them out of the public square, to throw them out of society, to break the cords and the bonds. What's that all about? That's saying, hey, the world is saying we don't want God. We don't want his commandments. We don't want his rules, and we don't want his lordship. Come on, second service. That's the world we live in right now. And look at God's response. That You say, oh, the world is going crazy. They, you know, they don't want God, and they, they're, they're, they're redefining everything, marriage and gender, and they, they, they're talking about Christians being hateful and all these things, and then, boy, it's getting dark, and it's getting cold out there, Lord. And, and here's God's response in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens is really concerned and called a board meeting, and he doesn't know what to do. Is that what it says? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, for the Lord shall hold them in derision. That's to laugh at them with contempt and scorn. God sees man trying to push him out and silence him and throw his word away and reject his commandments, and he sits on the throne, come on, second service, and he laughs, and he laughs at them because God cannot be silenced. God cannot be thrown out. God's power cannot be removed. His presence cannot be driven away from the earth. Woo! Come on. He's in control. He's on the throne. And that's the God we serve, our Father. Papa, you're in complete control. You are the God of heaven and the God of earth. Never forget your God is on the throne. Never forget where he dwells. He's your papa, your daddy, and he's in con control of all the details. So trust him today. The pattern continues. It says, yes, we approach God and, and we recognize him as father. Yes, we acknowledge where he is. He's in heaven and we understand all the implications of that. But the third part of the template continues. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So I want to ask you a question today. How many of you have hallowed this week? How many of you have hallowed this morning? I know you don't know how to answer me. Well, I'm making the point that that word is an antiquated word. Many of us don't know what it means or its implications. Well, I'm here to help today. <laughs> Let's take a look at this. Hallowed, I'd like to hallow, Lord, but I'm not sure how. To hallow something means to hold it as holy, sacred, consecrated, set apart, and revered. So the, the template is showing us that when we approach God as our Father and recognize where he sits in the heavens and that he's in complete authority and control, the next thing we do is we hallow, we reverence, we, we, we look as holy and sacred. We come to him with reverence. Now, to hallow God is to approach him with the appropriate sense of reverence and awe that is due him. You know, in other religious systems, it seems like there's more of a sense of awe, even when you come to church, when you come into the presence. I remember as a, as a young man being raised, you know, in the Catholic church, when you came in, you had to be quiet, you had to sit still. If you didn't, you'd get the back of your arms pinched, or your life would be threatened when you got home. Come on. 
and you, there is almost like a more of a reverence or a sense of awe. Sometimes as Christians who are born again, who have a relationship with Jesus, we just kind of just come into church, wow, like it's our living room. Put your feet up. Where, where's that sense of reverence? Where's that sense of awe? This is the tabernacle of God. The presence of God is here. The Holy Spirit is moving here, amen? Now, I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not saying we should all get our hair cut up to the back of our, you know, heads and dress really good and wear ties and put on our Sunday best. Some of that can be a show and it can be empty. But the truth is we should still have a sense of reverence and awe for God because the word tells us and Jesus has instructed us to hallow him, to give him the respect that's due his name. God is, in fact, everything we're not or ever could be. Why should I reverence him? Why should I awe him? Because he has no weakness. He has no flaw. He has no sin. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's everywhere at once. He is God, the creator and master of the universe. He's worthy of respect and awe. I know you and I didn't know how to hallow, but, you know, now we get it. We need to come to him and reverence him. And that's an important part of our prayer. There again, I think people who don't get desperate enough hinder their prayers. I think people that don't reverence God hinder their prayers. And Jesus is teaching us to come to God with the right amount of respect and awe. Believers should come to God in this reverent sense of, you know, prayer as worshipers. Get this, we are worshipers. We come to God, we get into his presence by worshiping him. I can't feel God worship your way into his presence. God's not talking, I worship your way in, amen. Worship the Lord. Change the atmosphere in your home. Put worship music on, amen. Put it in your car. Begin to sing praises to God, amen. Worship your way into the presence of God. That's part of hallowing him. That's part of revering him, amen that I don't show up like a, a lawyer, I don't show up like a salesman, I don't show up with a list of demands, but I worship my way into his presence. Hallowing him, giving him the reverence and the awe and the respect that's due his name, uh, worshiping him. Now, I, I want to say something. I didn't want to let the cat out of the bag here, but it says here that we are to hallow, and, you know, it's just and it's true that we are to reverence God. But the prayer that Jesus taught us as a template, as a model, tells us to hallow something very specific about God. It says, hallowed be thy what? It's his name. So we're to hallow his name specifically. Now, hallowed be thy name, there again, we have to dig past the surface to understand the meaning so that we can apply the structure. Do you know God actually commands that his name be reverenced. Every Old Testament saint who kept the commandments of the Mosaic Law Covenant understood that God's name was to be respected and awed. Exodus 27 is one of the commandments of God. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Did you hear that? It's amazing that, I'll tell you, something that's broken my heart is that people who say they're Christians many times take the Lord's name in vain. They use God's name as a curse or they use Jesus' name as a, you know, and they say it in anger. And I would tell you something, you know, I'm not being judgmental, but I would rather you say almost any other word than take the Lord's name in vain. Amen? 
It breaks my heart to hear his name used in vain. Yet we, we, we live in a cursing culture that uses the name of God as a swear word, that uses the name of Jesus in a way that is not respectful. And as Christians, we should never have that on our lips. Hallowed be thy name. Exodus 20, you, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Listen to the second half of it. It says, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Wow, that's sobering, amen? That when we misuse God's name and we take it lightly and we don't give it the sense of reverence and awe, we don't hallow it like Jesus told us to. There's, there's, there's some discipline attached to that. We will not be held guiltless. Well, uh, you'll still be saved. It's a free gift. You know, God still love you because that's who he is. But sometimes there's a price tag to pay for not reverencing the things of God. And that's not legalism. That's just good theology, amen, that you and I belong to him. We should be careful how we speak about him. Because if not for anything else, the world is listening. The world is listening. There are people that I grew up with that were around me. They, they would say any other word around me, but once, if they would take the Lord's name in vain, many of them that knew me would turn around and say, I'm sorry. And I would say, don't apologize to me. Say you're sorry to him. So God's name is to be reverence. It's to be hallowed. Now, the, I want to I belabor this point a little bit because I want you to get it. And I want you to see here that the Jews understand this concept. They always have. They had the commandments of Moses. They knew Exodus 20. They knew God's name was to be reverenced. And they take this concept very seriously even to this day. As many devout Jews and rabbis will not say the name of God or even write the name of God out of a show of awe or respect for the name of God. If you know some people who practice Judaism, you, and you see, they will write G hyphen D, or they will write YHVH. Come on, is anybody aware of this sort of thing? Amen. We, we, ha we have to learn from our Jewish history here. Why? Because Christianity came out of Judaism. The, their Old Testament saints knew some things about God that we still need to learn, that we should reverence him with a sense of awe. They won't even write or say the name of God. Uh, many Orthodox rabbis or uh, devout Jewish people, instead of saying the name of God, they will say Hashem, which means the name. When you say the name, everybody knows that means the name of God. But they, they count it as so holy, they won't even say it with their lips. Hashem, or they'll write when they write it, Y-H-V-H, or G hyphen D, they won't even write out the word God. There's orthodox rabbinical teaching that requires that no piece of paper with the Hebrew name of God written on it be thrown out or destroyed. Listen to this. This teaching suggests that any document having the name of God written in full on it in Hebrew is now a sacred, holy document and cannot be destroyed. It's powerful. Therefore, any piece of paper that may potentially be destroyed or thrown away should not have God's full name on it written in Hebrew. To avoid discarding such papers, books, or pamphlets in which God's name appears in Hebrew, these now holy documents must not be thrown away, but instead be stored in Geniza, which is a storage place, or given a kosher burial in a Jewish cemetery. Wow. They really take this seriously. 
You say, well, that's legalistic. Yeah, but think about how far to the other side of the pendulum we've swung. I would have to say that most Christians, by and large, don't hallow God's name the way that we should. And we need to rethink that. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your name that's above every name. The name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Knowing the names of God will help us approach our Heavenly Father correctly. Why? Because the names of God reveal the character of God. Throughout the Old Testament, there are many names for God. And many of you know these, and there are some compound names of God. I'm going to cover a few of these, but you look through the Old Testament, and you see God describing himself to Moses as, I am. Tell him, I am. I am that I am. Tell him, I am sent you. Remember when he went to Pharaoh? Remember when, when you know, he went, Charlton Heston went to see you, Brenner? <laughs> Moses. Moses standing there with his beard and his stick. I am sent me. That's the way God revealed himself. I am. He's called Yahweh. He's called Adonai. He's called El, Elohim, El Elyon. And then we have the compound names of God. There are many, but I want to cover some of them this morning. Why? Because they reveal the character of God. And when we come to God, we need to come to him, understanding his character by the way he has revealed his name to us. We have the compound names of God starting with Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my banner. Jehovah meaning Lord, Nisi, my banner. His banner over us is love. His banner over his people is mercy and love and all of these things. God has a banner over us, a covering over us, amen? There's also Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. How many are glad that our God is a shepherd? If you don't realize you're a sheep, then, I mean, sheep need a shepherd, do you know something about sheep? They are the opposite of smart. Sheep get stuck in things, fall in holes, run off cliffs, get hurt. Bad. Sheep are not smart, yet uh, the shepherd is looking out for us. We have a shepherd, Jehovah, the Lord, my shepherd, Jehovah Ra. How about this one, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, my healer. When we need healing in our body, we come to him, our Father who art in heaven, our heavenly Father who sits on the throne. You are Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals me. And because you're a healer, I petition you to touch my mind, to touch my spirit, to touch my body today. Got to get this, amen. The names of God reveal the character of God, and that's why we should reverence the name of God, amen. How about Jehovah Shammah? The, the Lord is here when God feels far away, when we feel disconnected from him, when we think he's not there, eh, when we cry out to him, what? He's the God who is here. He's near to us. When you feel estranged from him, when you feel abandoned, when you feel alone, approach him as Jehovah Shammah. How about this one, Jehovah Tzidkanu? If you're taking notes today, that's T-S-I-D-K-E-N-U, Jehovah Tzidkanu, the Lord our righteousness. When the enemy accuses you, you're a sinner, you can't be saved, God's mad at you, he's rejected you, there's no forgiveness for you, he won't forgive you this time. Are you getting me here today? We approach God as Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord my righteousness. 
It's not my righteousness, Ken. It's not my sinlessness. It's not my performance, Pastor Mike. It's Jesus. It's the Lord, my righteousness. How about one we all know, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will supply. Jehovah Jireh, meaning the many-breasted one, he has a supply of what we need to nourish us and sustain us. Do you have lack? Do you have need? Do you need breakthrough? Approach him as Jehovah Jireh. How about Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts? How about Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. This is one that has been special to me for a long time. Whenever there's trouble, whenever there's trial, whenever there's affliction, I approach God as Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. Do you need peace today? Come to Jehovah Shalom. Cry out to Daddy God and, uh, and recognize who he is and how he's all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing. He sits on heaven's throne. Hallow his name and revere him today and approach him as Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Ra, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Shama, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Jireh, Je- Jehovah Sabaoth, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. The names of God, hallowed be thy name. Reverencing his name, reveling in his name because he's Papa God and he sits upon heaven's throne. So far, our prayer structure looks like this. We come to God in prayer, celebrating the fact that he is our father. We acknowledge that our father sits on heaven's throne. We reverence him with a sense of awe because his name is holy. I want you to incorporate this into your prayer life immediately. Every prayer you pray, come to God acknowledging he's your father, acknowledging that he sits on heaven's throne, and reverencing him as a worshiper reverencing his name, and then approach him with one of these names that fits. If you can, learn these names of God. You can get them online. You can get them off of this message. Uh, But learn the names of God so when you approach him, you can approach him in the way that you're coming, whether you need healing, whether you need breakthrough, whether you need him to be near, whether you need him to be your banner, your shepherd, uh, or your peace. But this prayer structure that Jesus taught us will revolutionize our prayer lives. It will bless the heart of God and it will move the hand of God in our lives. When we come to him with the right structure in desperation, in persistence, and in faith, our prayers will touch the heart of God. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I pray today that your people would hear the instruction of the Holy Spirit today that our hearts would be the same as the disciples who said, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw something in Jesus' prayer life that they knew they didn't have and they wanted it. Let us be those people who want to please you and move you and touch you and know you as Papa God. So God, revolutionize our prayer lives and work in our lives We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you today, the Lord willing, we're going to continue to preach through this in the weeks to come. As you know, we just made a little start today, but there's so much more to the Lord's prayer, and we're going to unpack every piece of it by the grace of God. And when we're done, we're going to understand the structure and the template of prayer that Jesus didn't just give us a prayer to repray and repeat over and over, but he gave us a model of prayer that will revolutionize our prayer lives. Amen.